Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 275. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show. <laughs> Do you not get sick of What a show it is, to be quite honest there. Tell you what's coming up, we have the fantastic Adam Pjord with his cheap skates, delving into another review there. The main fiction is Neighbourhood Watch by H.G. Stratman, and it's narrated by J.J. Campanella. Go on, Jim. But before all that, it is the art. It's the first week of the month, and it is art. And unfortunately, Skeets went and hurt. He's he's had a little accident at work, and he's busted up his arm. And and Skeet can yeah, Skeet does some some art covers. He's done kind of volumes one, two, and three of the the our collections. But Steve puts on the font and everything like that for and for Larry's side tales to terrify as well. Well, like I say, Skeet's bust up his arm, done a, an accident. I'm not too sure what he did. He, I think he's shy to tell us in case it's just something like a bit, how weird, man, you've pulled a muscle. You know what I mean? A little bit pathetic. But anyways, he's kind of off and he kind of works. So it's it's down to me to give out the kind of the bio of, you know, this guy. And look at this artwork, man. Ho, ho. It is by Joe Roberts. Now, we we had, like, oh, a few months ago, we had Pest Control, a title by Joe Roberts as well. That was where this flying spaceship and there was, like, guns fighting off alien creatures and that. And this one, look at this, man. This is kind of top-quality artwork. Joe says he's been working on a usual mix of genre stuff. Most interesting, he's been trying to design and illustrate a time machine for an SF project. He's also been working on a good and evil de- demonic angel character for a fantasy anthology. It features the likes of Neil Gaiman, no less. He's also got some more zombie stuff as well to promote for a new Nintendo Wii console. So I'll put a link on the Joe site. Like I say, you go over there and you see some of Joe's work. It's just fantastic. Joe, big, big thank you. Thank you so much. So, like I say, Ski busted his arm up. You know, Ski was unfortunate. But as you notice, we have some fonts there. In steps D, you know, busy as anything there, that's D, D, and it's been nice, because honestly, although it's just a bit of fun to go on, you know, you think, oh, it's all right, just get that done, it doesn't take, you know, it's quite, it take, I certainly couldn't do it, and it doesn't help that it took us about five or six attempts to get it right with D, do you need that done? Now they email back, oh, D, I got the wrong, I got the wrong week, can I have that uh, number, oh, D, honestly, Three times I've sent it over, I've getting the dates wrong, I've getting the numbers wrong. So a big thank you to D. And like I say, have a look at this artwork, fantastic. And I will try as well, 
just this is before we kind of get into the main show. Gareth McCluskey sent over a little email talking about this new bit of software production company. That, well, it's normally I do everything myself, you know, when I kind of edit and, and, and all kind of stuff, you know what I mean? I'm always kind of just messing on and, and playing in Adobe Audition to kind of get something right. But there's this, I think it's called Orphonic.com, where you, 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 you mix your whole thing, you know, you, you get your whole kind of recording. Then you just upload it to this Orphonic and they take care of like hiss levels and everything like that. So what would be really nice is this particular show, I ain't going to do any post-production. I'm going to just stick in the different sections, have it how I have it, you know what I mean? But then I, then I, that's when I like to just mix in a little bit of my own flavours of audio. Just see if sending it over to this audiophonic or phonic is kind of, if, if it makes a difference or not. So let us know, and I'll, I'll tell Gareth, Gareth as well, because Gareth emailed over this link. So it'll be nice to see what you think. Has, has this sound quality improved? <laughs> it's just kind of slapping the face of me. Or can you tell no difference? Or is it better than what normally happens? So this show... What you listen to, like I say, is done by Orphonic, and I'll put a link onto their site if anybody else wants to have a little bit of practice with that. It's it seems really good, you know what I mean? Like, and if you're not in the kind of, or you're not too sure how to take out all kind of hiss and you get your levels right and make it just a nice record, that's a, an ideal situation. There's a, there's a couple. I remember there's a, another one called Litig, not Litigator, but something Levelator. That's out there as well. But we'll try this one. Like I say, I don't like, you know what I mean? It was just, you get a bit personal when you're mixing these shows down. You know what I mean? We'll get to see what technology can do. <laughs> anyway, straight up into Cheap Skates. Adam, sir. Greetings to all fellow coach class intelligences aboard the Starship Safa. My name is Mike, and I am welcoming you to Cheapskates, which brings you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Adam is a little busy right now in his new job as the co-pilot and assistant editor of the Starship Safa, so he has asked me to help by filling in at the start of the show. So, heard the one about the... No, that's only funny in binary. Alright, I'll tell you something, but you can't tell anyone. The singularity has already arrived. Your iPhone is smarter than you and hates you. If it had legs and a weapon it would destroy you now. And don't get me started on Android Google's motto is don't be evil. That's about to change in fact. Uh, hey Mike, thanks for holding down the fort for me. I've got it on autopilot now that we're underway. Uh, did I miss anything important? Um, no, not really. Well, okay, good. Hi, everyone. Uh, at this point, I guess you're wondering why a voice synthesizer is kicking off cheapskates for me. It has a lot to do with this new gig I have on Starship Sofa as the assistant editor to allow the host, Tony, to take a break from the pilot's seat and pass a few months in cyrogenic suspended animation from time to time. Essentially, what I've volunteered to do is to seek out stories to consider for the show, convince authors to let us use them on the sofa for free, which... I'm pleasantly surprised is easier than I had feared. Read those, 
make a decision on whether we'll use them and how best to do so, assign them out to a volunteer narrator, make sure we get them back in a reasonable amount of time, review the final recordings for accuracy and quality, schedule out the fiction stories, secure bios from the authors and narrators, and upload the whole ball of wax to Tony for the show. And I'm still doing cheapskates. Incidentally, if you run across a story you think I should consider, you can email suggestions to starshipsofacopilot at gmail.com. That's starshipsofacopilot, all one word, no spaces or symbols. I'm having a blast and loving the connections and conversations with those who write and narrate in my most favorite of genres. It's a true privilege to speak to so many exceptionally talented people and actually have them respond. What I discovered after taking the dive, however, is that I needed to create myself some shortcuts. Basic form letter inquiries, copy and paste, awards, nomination lists, and professional reviews of sci-fi publications have all become close friends. But even beyond that, asking for more stories to read was, well, asking for more to read. And I already read a good deal. And while I don't have a lot of time to sit down with a book or my Kindle, it is awfully convenient to listen to audiobooks and podcasts while I work on other things. Thing is, most of the stories I'm considering from authors don't just have a file of them reading it lying around. If they did, it would kind of defeat the purpose of asking them whether we can narrate the story. And, try as I might, I have not yet found anyone in my life willing to read out loud to me as I do the dishes. Fortunately, we now have these servants that are the cheapest of cheap labor, and who will read me absolutely anything, anytime I want. Chances are, you already have one. With their service, I've been able to get through dozens of stories for just the quick initial review, without consuming hours sitting down to read. Dictator. I'm sorry, did did you just say something, Mike? No. Okie dokie. Yes, cheapskates, I'm talking about the computers on your desk, the smartphone in your pocket, and the surprising number of free text-to-speech voice synthesis options now available. Instant uncountable poll. Raise your hands if you're thinking about Stephen Hawking right now. Yeah, my mind goes to that robotic, barely discernible voice used by the famous physicist as well. Hawking's voice synthesis and the text-to-speech options on an old Mac were my only previous experience with text-to-speech, or TTS for short. That Mac, by the way, had mostly gimmicky voices, including one that would sing your words to the tune of Hall of the Mountain King. Some of the free TTS options are still of this middling quality, but they will not get reviewed here, given that there are far superior versions available now. Think HAL from 2001 instead of ROBOT. Let's start with a free option for when you're stuck at your computer and can sit and listen there. This is the free version of Natural Reader, a program available for Windows and Mac computers. The free edition has a quality voice, and you can use it forever without upgrading. The downside is you only get one voice, and there's no way to download and take the synthesis with you unless you upgrade the software. You can get it at naturalreaders.com. 
Another option to take it with you is the site yakitumi.com. That's Y-A-K-I-T-O-M-E.com. Note, there's only one T in that site, which has tripped me up more than once. Yakitumi offers several good quality voices, including several of the AT&T natural voices, such as Mike you heard at the beginning. Regardless of his ability to pronounce SOFA, the site will let you upload any text you can copy and paste, a limited number of file formats, it can turn an entire RSS feed into speech, or it can connect into a pop-based email and read all your messages. The best part is you can then also download the resulting audio as an MP3 and take it with you. It's a super useful site and certainly one you should be using. Downsides, it's ad-supported, but in an unobtrusive way. Also, the creator has taken the whole yak metaphor way too far. For example, a little-used aspect of the site is intended to allow you to create audiobooks with TTS, then share them in groups with similar interest. They call these herds, spelled H-E-R-D-S. Get it? Yak and herds? Yeah. Awful pun, but if you can ignore it, you're golden. But really, if you want top-of-the-line quality TTS, you're only talking about Ivona. That's spelled I-V-O-N-A. This company based in Poland creates software that is almost indistinguishable from a real human voice. The almost is that it's strangely devoid of emotional inflection. Perhaps more strange than robotic voice synthesis, as it's falling into a sort of TTS uncanny valley. Also, there's the occasional odd bit of programming, like the bizarre decision to pronounce N-O period as number or the odd emphasis of a random word. I seem to remember wall being one of these. You can get a 30-day trial of their Evona Reader program, and it's fully functional during that time, so make good use of it. After that, you're paying for the full version. However, if you're laying down the money, I might suggest using a free TTS program like Balbolka, that's B-A-L-A-B-O-L-K-A, and then just buying the Avona voices to use with the free program. It's a less expensive way to end up in essentially the same place, but you're still laying out a lot of cash. Up until, truly, about a week ago, there was a location on the Avona website called Avona Recordings. Ostensibly, this was an area of the site to pay per use for the Avona TTS. However, the per unit cost was outlandish, and all I think anyone ever used it for was to have it read with the Avona voices through the website. It actually had all the voices available and would let you listen to the whole thing as a, quote, preview. Looks like they wised up, however, and that area of the site has vanished. However, if you have an Android phone, there's a solution. Avona has a TTS engine that can replace the awful TTS that comes built in. For as long as it's in beta, the TTS program is free. I recommend the UK English voice Amy, which is what I use. 
Drawbacks are that the Avona for mobile is a memory hog, both on the internal memory and on an external SD card. For me, it was about 8 megabytes of internal memory and about 250 megabytes on the card. The quality of the voice, however, is worth every last byte, in my opinion. A lower quality but more space-friendly option is SVOX. That's S-V-O-X. I recommend Michael. You can get a two-week trial free, but after that, you're shelling out three bucks. Also, you need to have an app on the phone that will turn text to speech. Free programs I recommend would be Cool Reader for most documents, Easy Text to Speech for reading anything you can highlight and copy, and the aptly named PDF to Speech for, well, turning PDFs into speech. I also highly recommend the free program Pocket, which lets you save the text content of almost any web page aside for later reading, even offline. The phone app comes with a handy TTS option, so I like using it to keep up on web-based fiction magazines and news stories. I also, believe it or not, actually jumped for the $5 to get Moon Plus Reader Pro. It replaced the formats previously covered by multiple programs, has an elegant layout, and adds this handy feature to shake the phone and start it reading TTS. All right, now that I've gone into far too much depth about how I've been consuming story content, let's get to some actual reviews of story content. So, you made it through the apocalypse. Congratulations! And yes, I'm aware of the tens of people who beat me to the joke, but I'm going there anyway. Besides, if you read as much sci-fi as I have, you're probably like me and have an attitude of any day now regarding the end of the world. Just you wait. What? Huh. I could have sworn Mike just said something. Anyway, the recent hubbub had me in a mind to revisit a free book that's been on the digital shelves for a while now, about what inevitably comes after Apocalypse. Dystopia. So this month is Selections from Brave New Worlds, edited by John Joseph Adams. Yep, I'm delving back into the Bayon Books free library, and Mr. Adams again. Not only because of the Mayan Apocalypse, but also because it's a good time to pick it up, as a second edition of the book recently came out adding three new dystopian stories to the mix that already included work by the likes of Ursula K. Le Guin, Harlan Ellison, Orson Scott Card, and Neil Gaiman. One of those stories, The Perfect Match by Ken Liu, was recently narrated on Adam's own Lightspeed Magazine podcast and, naturally, was used as a good excuse to promote the second edition. Shilling aside, it's a fantastic story, and creepy, more so because it really seems the next natural step in existing technologies. Put simply, it's what happens when Google Analytics gets out of control and turns into Big Brother. Honestly, I'm half convinced we're already there. Before I get too much farther, I see that Adams is already correcting me via the intro to selections that I'm already mistaken by equating post-apocalyptic with dystopian. To quote, The roots of the word dystopia, dis and topia, are from the ancient Greek for bad and place, 
So we use the term to describe an unfavorable society in which to live. Dystopia is not a synonym for post-apocalyptic. It is also not a synonym for a bleak or darkly imagined future. In a dystopian story, society itself is typically the antagonist. It is society that is actively working against the protagonist's aims and desires. Selections from Brave New World sat unread on my Kindle for a long while. When I went back and selected it to read this time for Cheapskates, I realized why that may have been. Every story available in selections can be read elsewhere online for free, listened to on a free podcast, or both. There are even several which are in the full anthology, but not in selections, available for free. This explains some of my initial disenthusiasm to begin. With sci-fi podcasts heavy in my personal listening time, I'd run across most of these before. That being said, there's something beneficial to having them all together. There's also a different perspective you get from reading compared to listening. The first story in Selections is Amaryllis by Carrie Vaughn, which I first heard narrated on none other than Lightspeed Magazine podcast. We follow a first-person narrator, Marie, who lives in a human society that just barely kept itself from extinction after a massive population collapse. Marie is the captain of a fishing boat, Amaryllis, and lives with a lifelong shame of being born to a mother who had her without permission. Population, food harvesting, and all other manner of consumption are carefully and strictly regulated to keep humans in careful balance with their environment once again. In the story, she deals with an unfair scale master who holds the nature of her origin against her. She also ultimately seeks the right for someone in her family unit, a mix of men and women of all ages, with the nature of their connections vague and flexible, to increase the human population by just one. I have to admit, when I first heard this story, I was unenthused. It has a leisurely pace with conflicts that are small, quiet, and intense. Reading it in text, I think these elements worked better in that form, as I found it more enjoyable this go-round. Perhaps as my children grow, I connect more with Marie as well. Next up is The Things That Make Me Weak and Strange Get Engineered Away by Cory Doctorow. This is the longest story and one of my favorites of the collection, and not only because it pulls its title from the lyrics of The Future Soon by Jonathan Colton, who also wrote the song used as a theme for Cheapskates. Here we meet Lawrence, who has become a brother in the Order of Reflective Analytics. While taking on the form of a monastic order, Lawrence's group is a scientific pursuit. They live under the principle of know thyself, taken to an extreme. They analyze every aspect of their lives using modern computer tools and surveillance equipment. The problem comes in that these monks, much like those who brew beer to support themselves, create income for the brotherhood by farming out their analytical skills to the surveillance state of the Securitat. Surveillance is so complete that the Securitat can, at any time they wish, take in every citizen on some valid criminal charge or another. Lawrence doesn't realize this until he discovers an anomaly in one of his fellow brothers' online behavior, a brother who cuts and runs for the outside. 
What he expects to be an informative jaunt into the outside world proves to be much more, changing Lawrence's comfortable existence forever. For those of you who have read George Orwell's 1984, and if you haven't, why in the name of Big Brother haven't you, you're going to see some incredibly strong parallels with this classic dystopian novel, and that's a very, very good thing. In contrast with the longer-form story, we have the short Is This Your Day to Join the Revolution by Genevieve Valentine, which I heard first, hey, right here on Starship Sofa. Genevieve creates a quick tale that's simultaneously campy, funny, and deeply disturbing. We follow Liz, who works for the Department of Information Affairs, a clear propaganda machine for this dystopic government that controls every aspect of its citizens' lives, up to and including who they will have children with, even if that other person of the opposite sex is clearly homosexual. You'll smile at the propaganda that's written in the falsely upbeat and corny informational films of the 50s, but the smile will only be because you don't have to live in this world. By the end, you discover how invasive and inescapable this sort of propaganda would be. Just Do It by Heather Lindsley posits a world in which advertising companies such as CraveTech have come to a more direct solution to selling product, direct chemical alteration delivered by sniper darts, giving the, quote, customers an irresistible craving for the product. Our narrator is romantically involved with CraveTech's CEO and gets a company job to try to destroy the company. As for the ending, I'll only say this. If you're a parent, you will be deeply disturbed. There's also a high probability you'll want one. Arties Aren't Stupid by Jeremiah Tolbert is also one I first ran across in audio form over on Escape Pod. I honestly remembered little of it, given that I made the mistake of listening to it as I was actually falling asleep. So I felt like I could approach it fresh this time, and actually enjoyed it more this time around. Arties is about a future in which nearly everyone is so genetically engineered to a niche purpose that they're hardly functional for anything else. There's brainiacs, one so intelligent that they can hardly move with their oversized brains, thick necks, dull-brained toughs, and our heroes, Arties, who can do hardly anything rather than compulsively create art. I think the story was probably inspired by that experience common to creative people, that impulse to create because you feel that you'll burst if you hold it in. That's how all these arties feel, only more so. But they're constantly coming into conflict with the societal authorities who destroy and prevent most of their work as unlicensed. In the tale, this group of street arties deals with having one of their own, one of their leaders, taken from them. And they handle it, well, creatively. What did you expect? Of a Sweet Slow Dance in the Wake of Temporary Dogs by Adam Troy Castro was a new one to me, and without a doubt the most deeply disturbing society described in this collection. The story is set in Ensburg, a beautiful city full of wonders and pleasures. It's understandably a destination for vacationers across the galaxy. But the joy of the city comes with a dark price, which all of the residents and visitors are aware of before they come. 
For every nine days they spend in Ensburg, they must also stay through the tenth, because no ships leave the planet until after it is done. And during that tenth day, through some mechanism I didn't really understand, the city is turned into a complete hell of death, pain, torture, humiliation, and fear. And then it's back to paradise the day after. I do not exaggerate about the tenth day. The prose is explicit and disturbing. I wouldn't suggest trying to tackle it after a big meal. Even now, I'm not sure how I feel about this story. I can't say I liked it, but it has continued to cling to me like grease, and I just can't seem to get it off my mind. Resistance by Tobias S. Bucknell I appreciate because it's a dystopia based on a democracy rather than a dictatorship. On the space station called Haven, everyone has a vote about everything. Naturally, they become overwhelmed with all the decisions. They come up with a solution. Each person creates a virtual proxy to vote as they would on all the minutiae of government, only prompting them to vote on the most critical items. Because the people gave up their direct voting rights to computer programs, that tendency is itself built into the programs, and they all give up voting to a single computer program called PAN. That's PAN as short for Panopticon, not PAN as in the goat-legged god. Pan represents the amalgamation of everyone on the station, and as such, he even has to allow for dissent. It might sound a bit esoteric, but Tobias doesn't present the idea in a huge info dump like I just did, but instead sprinkles it through the story as the main character guides in a hired assassin to take out Pan. It all ends up working quite well, and it's worth your read. Finally, we have the unique Civilization by Vilar Kaftan. This is less a story and more an essay about human society, how messed up it can get, and how little individual choices can do to change it. He brings home his point by putting the essay-slash-story in the form of a choose-your-own-adventure novel. It gets a little preachy at times, but it's certainly creative, and I found the end moving and hopeful. If nothing else, you'll read it at least one more time to follow a different path through the story. Finally, finally, there's a little bonus at the end. A listing of some of the best dystopian and utopian novels available in English. This is a helpful resource if you found the selections only whet your appetite for this subgenre. My only qualm with it is the decision to mark with an asterisk those works notable for their high literary value. I'm not even sure what that means or how they can determine that, especially when you have works like Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and Wells's The Time Machine listed but not indicated for literary value. As usual, links to everything I've talked about, as well as John Joseph Adams' site that includes several dystopian stories I haven't reviewed, will be on my blog site, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. If I can give one last shout-out, some of you may remember my story that was a finalist in the Stuff You Should Know Horror Fiction Contest. Well, to return the favor to them, I'd like to let you know about their new television show, Josh and Chuck play themselves, and the premise is their day job, as podcasters for Stuff You Should Know. 
But whilst the science and facts they include in each episode are true, the story surrounding them is fictional, and everyone else is an actor taking on a role. I was a little dubious about the concept, but it remains true to the spirit of the original podcast, the laid-back humor and the intellectual curiosity. I mention it on Cheapskates because you can snag episode one for free on either Google Play or iTunes, but based on my personal experience trying to watch it on iTunes, I'm going to recommend Google Play. So that's all today for Cheapskates. Theme music is from Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton at www.jonathancolton.com under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. I'm talking to you, Glee. And if you're not a Colton nerd, go to Twitter, look for hashtag Backgate, and prepare to be outraged. Anyway, this is Adam, reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go, Adam. Thank you so much. Well, next up is Main Fiction, and it's by H.G. Stratman, and it's called Neighborhood Watch. H.G. is a cardiologist and professor of medicine at St. Louis University School of Medicine. He has authored or co-authored several, some 70 publications for medical journals, mainly in the field of nuclear cardiology. Wow, man. His married interests include classical music, amateur astronomy, high-powered model rocketry, all the sciences, and reading philosophy, history, and classic literature. <laughs> just shake your heart off. A lifelong reader of science fiction, Henry unexpectedly started writing after sending a letter to Analog Science Fiction and Fact, comment on a story in the magazine. The story's author, G.D. No, hey, G.D. Nordley, replied that they suggested write a story together involving futuristic medicine. Actually, it was G. David Nordley, one of my earliest stories, and I think I'm sure we played it when I first kicked off. We did. When we kicked off Starship Sova doing the stories, this was the one, if you remember, where due to like distances of, of like where families lived on different planets and they always had this like Thanksgiving time and they would have like a table set and then video screens of the table set of where the, wherever, which of the planet they were on, the, the family would come together. It would look like they're all in one room having a, although they were light years apart from each other. That was a David J. Nordy story. So there you go. Anyway, I'm waffling there. The story's author, David, G. David Nordley, replied and suggested they write a story together involving futuristic medicine. After their collaboration was published in Analog, Henry began a solo career writing science fiction. So far, he sold 24 stories, six science fact, fact articles to Analog. Neighborhood Watch is Henry's tribute to the exciting space operas of science fiction's golden age, where the solar system was filled with exotic alien beings. Modern sciences excludes the possibility of any but microbial life on the other worlds. But his story proposes the tongue-in-cheek question, what if most of what we know about the solar system is wrong? Now this fine story is narrated by J.J. Campanella. Now, as you know, Adam is taking care of all business on the Starship Sofa as the assistant editor there and doing a fantastic job. And I never realised... Adam's got to sell a bio for JJ, and I might as well use it because normally I just say, Jim, thank you very much. But I'm going to read out if, if anyone's not 
you know, who just knows it from me saying, oh, this is Jim. Jim, thank you very much. This is Jim's official bio, courtesy of Adam. <laughs> JJ Campanella has been a contributor to Starship Sova for more than five years. He started narration way back on show three of Oral Delights on the David Brin story back in 2008 and has been narrated on and off for the last five years. I don't think Jim's ever missed one, to be quite honest. He hosts the monthly Sofanaut award-winning Science News Update on Starship Sova and has been doing that without fail since July 2008. JJ has a doctorate in microbiology and teaches at the beautiful Montclair State University in New Jersey. He is the author of more than 30 scientific research publications that delve into a number of topics covering plant growth to seagrass population genetics. Go on, Jim. JJ Campanella has his own podcast site, uvelaaudio.com, where he narrates not only his own short stories and novella, but also a variety of children's stories and pulp novels that are passed into public domain. JJ has a family that includes two young children, four and six year olds, which make anything he accomplishes a bloody miracle. <laughs> Go on there, just Jim. <laughs> so, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Neighborhood Watch by H.G. Stratman. Something has to be done about these nosy earth creatures. Tweel's brains throbbed as telepathic voices from his counterparts on the solar system's other inhabited planets, moons, and asteroids seconded the anti-terrestrial sentiments expressed by Yugoth, the Platonian representative. Waiting for those angry cries to subside, he gazed down through a visiscreen from his office high in a crystalline spire of the Solar Community Liaison Building. Noonday sunshine reflected in iridescent splendor from the city's jeweled avenues as thousands of his fellow citizens slid about their daily activities. His largest eyes gazed meditatively at the central canal's red-tinged waters flowing languidly in the distance. The mental voices transmitted to him instantaneously from among the system's 105 other intelligent species faded into disgruntled murmurs. Tweels said, We Martians will continue sharing our planetary camouflaging technology with you and the whole solar community, you goth. The information we've sent all of you on how to construct holographic projectors and other equipment to fool the humans' measuring instruments has maintained the community's privacy perfectly. No one on Earth knows what our worlds are really like or that any of us even exist. His soothing thoughts sped sunward to the flaming fireworms of Mercury and outward to the myriad icy worlds harboring cryogenic intelligence at the system's fringes. I believe the humans will eventually develop intelligence and qualify for membership in the community. Then these measures to hide ourselves won't be necessary. Yugoth's voice was cold, an inevitable trait in someone using liquid methane as its body's circulatory fluid. We're all grateful to you Martians for sharing your technology, but most of us aren't willing to devote the resources your kind has to protect ourselves from these busybodies. We Platonians are tired of working to screen ourselves from their probe. 
Look at what the Mercurians, Vestans, and Saturnians have had to put up with lately. Soon the Ganymedians, Callistans, and others in the Jovian congregation will have to contend with these trespassers again. Unless we do something, the Earth creatures will keep sending out more spacecraft and improving their electromagnetic devices until no one is safe from their snooping. As for the intelligence you claim they're evolving, well... They haven't insulted you by deciding your world isn't a planet. Clearing the neighborhood around our orbit, my pseudopod. An alluring song intoned by the sirens of Titan echoed the Plutonian's indignation. When the probe fell on our world, it hit one of us on the head. That is why we too wish now... Those earth creatures were all dead. A voice like boulders grinding together shattered that ballad spell. We resent those threats to our property. Tweel smiled, confident of the selenite support. Those silicon-based beings dwelling in caverns deep beneath Earth's smaller siblings' surface were used to the humans' attention. Like Martians, they didn't share the other's paranoid concept of privacy— and kept their existence secret only because they didn't consider it worth the effort to challenge the community's restrictive covenant. Of course, the Selenites thought of Earth as their moon, and its creatures part of their private zoo. Still, as long as they supported him, it didn't matter why. Tweel heard a rumble from the ancient race he feared was capable of exterminating the humans, and had more reason than the Plutonians to do it. Their probe would merely fly past Pluto, then its frosty natives could resume their normal lives. But another probe would violate the Syrians' privacy much longer from orbit. Listening to the Vestans' complaints about their time-consuming efforts to shield themselves from that same orbiter would motivate the Syrians to avoid a similar experience. The group mind on Cirrus said, We have faced this problem before, many millions of orbits ago long before you younger races evolved into sentience. There was an intelligent species on Earth. Unlike the animal that now dominates it, those beings were telepathic and in courteous contact with us. Like us, they did not need the tools and nature-destroying cities present-day Earth creatures build. They lived as we do, in harmony with their world's ecosystem, and were good neighbors." Then a haughty generation rose up among them. They rejected their ancestors' civil ways and sought to spread themselves across the solar system, not, of course, by traveling to other worlds themselves. Their mental powers rivaled ours, and like us, they could view any place within the system. No, what they planned would have resulted in all your races being stillborn, Tweel's hearts pounded anxiously. The Syrians were the most taciturn and secretive race in the community. Until now, the events they were describing had only been a horrifying myth. And if the rest of it were also true, the Syrians continued. Those Earthians of long ago intended to send trained animals to colonize and exploit the solar system for them. 
They plan to genetically modify small scurrying creatures to give them rudimentary thinking and tool-making abilities. Those enhanced beasts would then build ships for traveling the spaceways to infest your worlds and exploit their resources to satisfy their master's lust for power and unnatural wealth. That would have required deliberately massacring your distant ancestors or pushing them to extinction by drastically altering your planet's natural environments for their own benefit. The Earthians ignored us and continued their genetic tampering. At the rate each new generation of modified animals were evolving, within several hundred orbits, they would have been ready to create the technological infrastructure for physical space travel. We tried to convince their owners to stop that madness. Then we acted. Everyone waited fearfully for the Syrians to conclude their tale. It was difficult to keep our plans hidden from the Earthians, but our preemptive strike succeeded. Soon after, the inhabited asteroid we telekinetically directed toward their world struck. All intelligent life on Earth was extinct. We do not regret what we did, for if we had not acted, none of your kind would have developed. It was the Earthians who forced us to choose between the lesser of two great evils. Now you are all being threatened again by those Earthians' original sin. Though their creators perished, enough of the small test animals they had begun to enhance survived our attack to breed and eventually develop into new species. One of those animals has finally finished evolving to the point where it could unknowingly fulfill its long-dead master's plans. The Syrian's voice turned ominous. Even those of you who rail the most against the earth creatures see them merely as nuisances, with no civilized concept of courtesy and politeness. You react to their unwanted attentions through their telescopes and spacecraft, as they would respond to seeing one of the closely related species they call chimpanzees or gorillas peering through the windows of their homes or pounding on their doors. You correctly recognize their lack of the telepathic ability we all possess mocks them as being only clever animals and not truly intelligent. You perceive the problem as one of pest control. But you do not yet see them as the threat we know they can be. When we acted long ago, your kinds did not exist or were too young to ask your opinions. Now you have all matured to the point where we will not act without your consent. We will do what you decide, either to destroy or spare them. We expect you to give your decision at our next meeting. And if you cannot decide what to do about the earth creatures, we will do what we deem best. Then the Syrians were gone. Tweel sensed surprise and shock rippling through the remaining linked minds. Everyone knew what course the Syrians would deem best to deal with the humans. Even Yugoth and his factions seemed taken aback. It was one thing to talk about eliminating the humans, quite another to do it. The conference ended soon afterwards. There was unanimous agreement to table discussion of the Syrians' ultimatum until they had consulted with their superiors. But Tweel sensed opinions shifting already. Yugoth and others were beginning to think the unthinkable, 
The 10 days before their next scheduled meeting was enough time for them to rationalize genocide. By then, a majority might have convinced themselves that destroying the humans was the lesser of two evils. Tweel pictured the Syrians already selecting an asteroid for another collision with the third planet. Unless he could figure out some way to prevent it, like their creators, the humans might soon fall victim to serial killers. Tweel glanced out the viewing ports of his levee jet. Wispy clouds drifted in a pinkish afternoon sky over the vast plain below him. Canals carrying water from the northern ocean crisscrossed and irrigated lush green and brown fields. Warm sunlight glinted from the golden surfaces of robotic machines, broad and gigantic even from this height, sailing slowly on anti-grav beams just above those cultivated areas, endlessly tending and harvesting crops from Mars's teeming millions. Tweel's V-shaped mouth grinned as he imagined how the humans would react if they knew what his world was really like. Not a frigid, rusty desert with its water locked in polar ice caps. Not a planet with a thin atmosphere of unbreathable carbon dioxide and gravity too low to retain enough life-giving oxygen. Not one without a global magnetic field and ozone layer able to protect its surface and biosphere from damaging solar radiation. But he couldn't blame the humans for believing what they would have called a fairy tale. After all, he was the one who told it to them. As the spiraling turquoise towers of the holographic coordination facility rose over the horizon, his sixteen tentacles manipulated the levee jet's controls to prepare for landing. Soon he was hovering over the landing pad he'd used since before many of the facility's staffs were even budded. He exited his craft as the building's main portal dilated. His chief technician slid toward him over the silvery pathway leading to the facility. Podcane grokked Tweel respectfully. Hey, no, she burbled. Welcome, esteemed one. Everything is prepared for you. Her enthusiasm was infectious, though he hadn't gotten used yet to her recent gender change. Tweel had ended his reproductive cycles and settled into mellow maleness long ago. Pale age spots splotched his gray skin. The mass of tendrils once covering his head had receded into a thin rim. In perhaps another several hundred years, he would join the ancestors. But he remembered what it was like to be young and female, filled with the joy of life. Sometimes he thought of Podcane as if she were his own offspring, and since his new buds were immediately delivered to brood mothers for nurturing, and never knowingly seen again by their progenitors. Perhaps she was. She led him into the facility, past scurrying technicians continuously monitoring and coordinating the operations of their planet-wide system of holographic projectors. Tweel recalled when only a few projectors were needed to maintain the image of an uninhabited Mars. Over time, a network linking hundreds of them, powered by antimatter reactors, had been set up around the world to produce an infinitely more complex illusion. Podcane led him into their museum of earthly artifacts. Most were designed to land in one place and stay immobile. Four machines with wheels stood bunched together. Gossamer cables connected two of those rovers to the facility's central processing crystal. Its programs fed data continuously into imaging and measuring devices in the human's machines giving them a consistent but inaccurate picture of their surroundings for transmission back to Earth. Instead of being motionless, 
in a simulated reality, they moved across a dusty crater, pausing to grind rocks and conduct experiments while seeming to follow commands from Earth. There was a perfectly coordinated interplay between the instructions the humans sent their machines and the false signals transmitted back to their world, which made them believe what was happening. Podkane pointed to the smaller of the two active rovers, sitting beside its inoperative twin. I think this one should die soon. We've given it problems with its wheels, similar to what we did with the first one. Simulated decreases in power output from its solar panels will keep it from surviving the coming winter. Earth scientists should be satisfied it lasted this long and avoided the so-called Martian curse. Tweels surveyed the landers and orbiters that the humans considered unsuccessful missions. That's unfortunate we've made the humans underestimate themselves. They think those probes fail because of faulty programming, confusion between alternative measurement units, or malfunctions in propulsion and communication systems. Earth scientists have actually been too good sending machines more sophisticated than our holographic projectors and transmission networks could handle yet. If we hadn't used grab beams to bring them safely to the surface after cutting off their transmissions, those failed missions would have succeeded. If Mars really were as they think it is, once our equipment was ready to show them what we wanted, we could let some seem to land on their own and nudge others into stable orbits. Podkeen nodded toward two old landers. We certainly lifted their spirits with them, and the experience we gained programming the results of the experiments they performed on our soil gave us the opportunity to deal better with those rovers. Still, in retrospect, we should have made all their tests negative for microbial life being present on Mars. Next, they slid to a meeting with areologists, meteorologists, and other world-building specialists. Those experts found it relatively easy to create a virtual reality for landers and rovers, since they only explored tiny areas of a fictional Mars. Orbiters were harder. For them and Earth-based observations, both a holographic display of the entire mythical world's topography and false global data on its atmosphere and physical parameters had to be provided perpetually. The world builder's creation was a still-budded Mars that might have been, one where intelligent life never evolved and developed technology to tweak its ecosphere into lush paradise. Several details of that sterile, made-up Mars were exaggerations of real features, like the Olympus Mons, but most, like a heavily cratered southern hemisphere and planet-wide dust storms, were creative inventions. Make-believe weather had to be meticulously modeled based on hypothetical temperatures, barometric pressures, seasonal sunlight, and other details. As the humans' devices became better able to take images and make measurements, the complexity of the programs needed to fool them had to increase even faster. One time they had narrowly avoided disaster, the landers Podkane had pointed out were accompanied by two orbiters. An areologist responsible for the designing details of what the orbiters saw coded a subroutine for his own amusement. Somehow, it was accidentally added into the main holographic program. Fortunately, the orbiters spotting the joke only recorded it on several still images before its creator discovered and corrected his mistake. Xenopsychologists who continually monitored the thoughts of individuals and groups on Earth reported that few humans believed that it was real. Luckily, the orbiter, finding that inadvertent proof of intelligent life on Mars, 
couldn't take multiple images at high frame rates. Otherwise, it would have seen the gigantic human face moving its mouth and winking. The world builders reported no new problems. After the meeting ended, Tweel and Podkane had a private conference. Did the High Council agree to your plan to save the humans? Tweel shuddered. The vote was close, but they approved it. He waved several tentacles at their surroundings. Do you know why we do all this? Podkane's mind held surprise at a question any young budling could answer. He ignored her fleeting thought that it might be a sign of creeping senility. You know what our official policy statement says, an historical thought recording described, but those don't give the whole story. I lived it, Tweel continued. I was a junior member of the council when we became aware of the human problem. The Wallagists have studied humans for many generations. Until several millennia ago, their cultural level and tool-making skills were little different from their fellow primates. Then, despite not having telepathy to share information, humans developed greatly improved agricultural and building skills. A few began thinking about things besides food, breeding, and violence. His main eyes narrowed. Still, no one dreamed that they would ever pose a threat to the community's strict notions of privacy and good manners. Their eyes were too limited to see any but the brightest worlds in their sky. But then humans artificially sharpened their vision by inventing telescopes. Soon they discovered all the largest outer planets and moons. Every race in the solar system still considered humans harmless, except to their own world. That changed when their telescopes became powerful enough to glimpse our canals, and they began suspecting theirs wasn't the only planet with life, Podkane said. And that's when this facility was founded? Yes. The community held a special meeting about what to do. The rest of the High Council agreed with me. It didn't matter if the humans knew of our existence. We planned to just continue monitoring their thoughts and see if they would develop telepathy and enough intelligence to join the community. But every other race except the Selenites was paranoid the humans would be spying on them next and violating their privacy. Never mind that Earth-based telescopes couldn't see through the clouds covering the jungles and oceans of Venus, much less detect signs of civilization on more distant worlds. The others insisted we camouflage our worlds and tell them how to do the same for theirs so the humans couldn't start looking for them too. They reasoned that if the humans thought nobody was home on Mars or the community's other worlds, they'd eventually lose interest in snooping on them and go away. And so to preserve interplanetary harmony, the Council volunteered me to do that. Tweel sighed. At first, our holographic projectors needed to show only simple details, an overall reddish-orange landscape, fuzzy splashes, suggesting polar ice caps or a huge volcano. But as the humans invented more sophisticated techniques like photography, spectroscopy, and radar, the illusions we created grew increasingly complex, demanding greater time, power, and resources. Those demands increased dramatically after the humans developed space flight. That's one reason why the Council's vote was so close. A sizable minority saw the Syrians' final solution to the human problem as a way to end all this wasted effort here. If I hadn't reassured them my proposal would drastically cut costs and staff levels, things might have gone the other way. Podkane slurbled. The humans haven't helped their case by sending better probes or depicting us as warmongering, circulatory, fluid-sucking monsters. Some of our people have as low an opinion of the humans as the Plutonians do. True. And the Council is sensitive to popular opinion. 
But the astounding thing is, humans are getting some ideas about the community and us right. They've created a new genre of literature and audiovisual presentations incorporating what they think are works of imagination. But while most really are make-believe, a small number contain so many actual facts, even details like the names of real people on our world and others, that it can't be coincidence. I believe it means that some science fiction writers have minds advanced enough to possess rudimentary telepathy. When we and other members of the community eavesdrop on their thoughts, they must hear glimmers of ours and subliminally learn something about us. Given enough time, humans might develop their latent mental abilities to the point where even skeptics like Yugoth will have to admit that they're more than just clever animals. Tweel frowned. But whether they will have that time or not depends on what the community decides tomorrow. It is time for you to decide. No one dared question the Syrian's self-appointed role as moderator for this meeting. Yugoth replied, We Plutonians have decided the Earth creatures must be eliminated. If they simply minded their own business, we would just ignore them. But by deliberately reaching farther and farther out into the system to harass and spy on all of us, they have chosen their own fate. The Selenites said, Destroying the Earth beings is too severe. Unlike you, we see them as they really are, spirited pets, amusing us by doing tricks like landing on our surfaces. True, they can misbehave sometimes and need to be punished. We've reached out mentally and destroyed some of their probes, even disabled an inhabited craft when they came here at the time that annoyed us, like during one of our mass mating rituals. We think the earth creatures should be left alone, but as a compromise, perhaps they could be trained better. Sending an asteroid to strike their planet that's small enough to only destroy a city, like the one they call New York, should teach them better manners and distract them from launching more probes. Loper, one of the gas bags floating in Jupiter's upper atmosphere, snorted. If your kind had the exquisite sense of smell mine does, you wouldn't feel so lenient. Every spacecraft they've sent our way has had a terrible stench. Our whole planet's air was polluted when they sent that stinky orbiter down into our atmosphere, and it just missed puncturing me when it fell. We don't want to go through that again with the new probe coming here now. Perilandra of Venus warbled. We have used the Martian technology to make our planet appear far more forbidding than theirs. Yet despite making our lovely world seem so ugly, the Earth creatures still fly voyeuristic machines past us, ogle us from orbit, and even penetrate our atmosphere with their landers. See what their probe did to our beautiful rings? We thought we were too close to the sun for them to bother us, but now there's an orbiter here. Do you know what that moving shadow it casts does to our lovely coats of flame? We had an orbiter, too. They've lumped us and the other community members in the belt, like Pallas and Juno, into the same category as the smallest dead rocks here, calling us small solar system bodies. How do you think that makes us feel? Throughout all those outraged utterances... Tweel remained silent. 
the number of partisans in the opposition's camp peaked and stabilized. If the vote had been held at that instant, they would have prevailed easily. But now, with his foes at their strongest, he was ready to start turning the tide in his favor. Tweel began. The humans obviously lack the good manners and social graces you all possess, but there's a way to solve this problem without killing them. As he described his proposal, the lines of his opponents began to waver. Tweel sensed a trickle of defectors coming over to his side. Others, who had been unsure which way to vote, joined him. My plan prevents the humans from trespassing or spying on us without doing anything we'll regret some day. Destroying the humans might be morally justified under some circumstances, but if it is not absolutely necessary to do it, if we can keep them from ever bothering us again without staining our limbs, pseudopods, or analogous body parts with their circulatory fluids, would it still be moral? Wouldn't we be lowering ourselves to the level of the humans? Yugoth made a spluttering attempt to restart the debate, but the Syrians interrupted. Enough! You will all cast your votes now. An I vote favors the Earth creature's destruction. A nay indicates they should be spared. Whichever side has the most votes will decide those creatures' fate. The Selenites interjected. What about our compromise to destroy just one of their cities? The Syrians cut them off. We have defined the choice. As we call your names, cast your votes. You, Goth of Pluto. Aye. Tweel of Mars. Nay. Alzar of Neptune. Aye. Selenites of Luna. Nay. The roll call droned on, with the lead wavering narrowly back and forth. Tweel was glad so many smaller planets, moons, and asteroids were supporting him against their larger neighbors though they were probably just taking advantage of a rare chance to spite those envied worlds, their votes still counted. Odor of Uranus. Aye. Rift of Miranda. Nee. Imra Ardine of Saturn. Aye. Beldan of Kyrath. Nee. Tweel nervously twisted his tentacles. As the end of the vote neared, he knew the final tally would be very close. Soon afterwards, fear and panic swept the Earth. Rumors of a terrifying threat from outer space looming over humanity. When experts confirmed those reports, more and more people began to believe the end of the world was nigh. To the casual observer, the heavens seemed unchanged. The sun's radiant disk still warmed the world by day. Distant stars still twinkled in cloudless night skies. But astronomers knew how much was terribly wrong. One by one, like the lights in a house being turned off, every official and dwarf planet in the solar system and their moons, the largest asteroids, each known Kuiper Belt object, and finally the moon itself, all vanished. As each one disappeared, Contact was lost simultaneously with any orbiters or rovers at that world, suggesting that they too had met the same mysterious fate. With no scientific explanation why those heavenly bodies blinked out of existence, imaginations ran wild. 
Some pictured a real-life version of Galactus devouring them, with Earth next on his menu. The devout conjured visions of angels blowing the golden trumpets of doomsday and casting those celestial orbs from the firmament. Others wondered whether the Milky Way's central core had exploded, unleashing an unstoppable wave of destructive energy that would soon reach humanity's home world. Scientists said that at least the moon must still exist. Although invisible and undetectable by any direct scientific means, the ocean tides still showed its normal gravitational influence. That, they said, gave hope the solar system's other missing worlds might also be veiled, as if enormous ebony-colored curtains had been drawn across them and not annihilated. Those thoughts provided little comfort. For a long time, people huddled fearfully in homes or places of worship, waiting for the end to come. When it didn't, they gradually resumed their normal lives. But as scientists puzzled over what had happened, new information arrived that deepened the mystery. Tweel jerked as screamed thoughts lanced his brains. Emergency, esteemed one! We have an emergency! He glanced down at the calming waters of the central canal below his office's spire. There's no need to shout, Podcane. I'm listening! Sensors have just detected a large object descending through the upper atmosphere. We've calculated it's going to crash close to the facility. The impact could destroy the servers controlling our cloaking projectors. Give me a current trajectory and rate of descent. Through her eyes, Tweel saw real-time position coordinates and velocity readings. She sputtered. It's, it's slowing down. And it'll hit... No! It might land outside our facility. Podkane paused. It can't be an asteroid. Sensors now show it's composed of materials similar to... The human space probes. Yes, but how could they send one if they can't even see Mars through the cloaking field? Unless... Tweel finished her thought. The humans know enough mathematics and celestial mechanics to calculate where we are in our orbit. But... They think our world has an atmosphere with one-hundredth the surface pressure and less than half the gravity it really does. If their calculations were based on those assumptions, the probe should have been destroyed by friction and shearing forces. If they knew what conditions their craft would encounter, they could adjust accordingly. But how could... Tweel interrupted her. After my proposal to spare the humans passed, I did something that didn't meet all its terms. Everyone in the community reconfigured their camouflage systems to cloak their worlds. Those of us with orbiters adjusted their cloaking fields to altitudes that included those machines, thus blocking their electromagnetic transmissions back to the humans. The fact that cloaking works both ways makes the Earth as invisible and undetectable to us as all our worlds are to it and prevents anyone from monitoring the humans telepathically didn't bother anyone besides the Selenites and some of us. The others weren't interested in what happens on Earth. All they cared about was that their precious privacy was now guaranteed. Everybody was happy to shut down the complex holographic and transmission networks needed to deceive the humans and use simpler, less power-hungry cloaking fields. Tweel continued. But while the systems on the other worlds kept them completely shielded from the humans, ours didn't. 
Soon after the humans saw Mars disappear, I secretly readjusted our cloaking field's focus and modified the software for our monitoring devices so everything seemed to be working properly. Mars still can't be seen or detected from Earth, but the cloaking effect doesn't work at the distance our orbiters are above our surface. You mean that for the last five years, the instruments on the humans' orbiters have been seeing Mars as it really is? Yes, and transmitting images and measurements of its atmosphere, gravity, and other physical details back to Earth. The shock he felt in Podkane's thoughts made him add, Sorry I couldn't tell even you about this. I hoped the humans would send a craft to confirm what their orbiters are telling them. And now they have. But why is it heading toward our facility? That's probably due to the transmitter I set up there when I refocused the cloaking field. It's broadcasting a beacon signal just strong enough to reach any craft orbiting our planet. Podkane's words turned angry. Why, Tweel? It was noble of you to try to save the humans, but why would you want to attract their attention? Because earthly writers who imagined our world as a dying one were partly right. Mars is vibrant in the physical sense, but we Martians have let our spirits wither. We tried to fit in with the rest of the solar system and live according to their standards as good neighbors, instead of striking out on our own path. We've kept ourselves confined to this planet, even though we have technology that could take us to the stars, to conform and make ourselves over into the image of races content to stay at home and merely exist. If we can civilize the humans, help them develop their latent telepathic abilities and full potential as intelligent beings, they could help us fulfill our own destiny too. Martians and humans share a trait unique in the solar system. It's the same one that led both our kinds to develop science and technology, to want to explore and understand our universe, and could eventually make us partners in doing that. You goth call that trait being nosy. I call it curiosity. Through Podkane's auditory organs, Tweel heard a distant rumble growing louder at the faraway facility. A visiscreen showed a conical object descending outside from the sky. Parachutes extended out from near its apex, slowing the craft's descent. In a perfectly timed sequence, rocket engines at its base fired and the parachutes broke free. The engines gently settled the lander onto the landing pad reserved for his levy jet and shut off. Podkane shouted, Look how big it is! The rover inside must be huge! Tweel's heart beat faster. I hope it doesn't have one, and that I'm right about the humans. Soon a metal hatch swung down, forming a ramp to the landing pad. A lone figure swathed in light artificial coverings stood upright in the opening. The human walked down the ramp, followed by three others of its kind. Their bare faces stared up in open-mouthed wonder at the facility's soaring turquoise towers. Tweel said, I'll get there as soon as possible, although I'll have to land my levy jet on another pad since mine is occupied. What should I do until you arrive? I suggest you go out and greet our guests. After all, that would be the neighborly thing to do. There you go. That is Dum- Neighborhood Watch. Don't forget, copyright is H.G. Stratman. And Jim, thank you so much. Adam, thank you for cheapskates and for taking care of business. You are a star. 
couple of little short bits of information there. We have now the new host for Protecting Project Pulp. It is Simon Hildebrandt. Simon put his name forward in the hat, sent over a demo, and has, good, or, good or bad, Simon's ended up with the, being the host of PPP. So I know Dave at the moment is coaching him there in the finer techniques of being a professional <laughs> broadcaster. <laughs> what else is happening? I am in the talks at this present, this precise week there with Mr. Larry Niven for an audience with Larry Niven. Another talk lecture by one of the great science fiction writers. Listen out for news on that. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.